Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system. While you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what is possible rather than what's wrong with our schools today. I'm your host, Ross Dennis. Today's episode, Who Will Educate Our Children? And by that, we mean how are schools going to recruit and retain the quality workforce of teachers, principals, and superintendents? You know, the research is clear. If an elementary school student has a great teacher three years in a row, they are highly likely to be successful throughout their school experience. Likewise, having an ineffective teacher three years in a row is a recipe for failure. The research is also clear about the powerful influence of an effective principal and how they can have a, a, a big impact on student achievement and parental involvement. Finally, closing the circle of success is having a qualified and effective superintendent of schools who hires and supports great principals, manages complex systems, and has an ear, has the ear and the support of the community, and who's fearless and strategic. So what's going on? Teachers are leaving schools to pursue other interests in droves. In Mecklenburg County, North Carolina alone, over 850 teachers resigned their positions during the last school year. The same is true for principals. In fact, over 50 principals have resigned in Mecklenburg County since August 2021. Superintendents, once again, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, as an example, the district has hired and fired five superintendents in 10 years, five in 10 years. That's a lot of listening tours and a lot of strategic, excuse me, strategic plans that never get implemented. It's not just here. Across the United States, educators are leaving the profession to pursue other interests. Who will educate our children? At this moment, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools is hiring what are called guest teachers. The requirement, a high school diploma. That's right, a high school diploma. Joining us today on the program is a former superintendent of schools, now a professor of education, Dr. Brian Osborne, and Jolyn Shield, a former teacher and principal who is now a career pathways advisor for MECED. And responding in our third segment, the chair of MECED's board of directors and the 58th mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, Mayor Jennifer Roberts. Well, welcome, Brian. You're someone that I've known and admired for, well, decades. And welcome, Jolyn, our extraordinary career pathways advisor and educator, and Mayor Roberts a passionate and tireless advocate for education and social justice. And welcome to all of our listeners and supporters out there in podcast land. I'm excited to, to announce that Let's Reinvent Schools has had over 2,000 downloads and four in Spain. So I encourage our guests and our listeners to share the link to this episode across your social media platforms. We're going to depart from our traditional format today and then I'm going to participate more in the conversation in addition to asking questions. Let's begin by focusing on teachers. What's going on? The pandemic, quality of life issues, teaching to the test, money. Ryan, what do you think? Hey, Ross, it's great to be with you. And uh, thanks for inviting me. It's great to reconnect after some time. You've been uh, really important to me in my leadership development at various points in my career. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think there's lots of different answers to your question about why it seems to be more difficult to recruit high quality candidates to teach our kids in our schools. And, um, you know, it's, it's certainly pandemic related stress. Most recently, it also goes back to, I think, 
the beginnings of a real anti-teacher and in fact, anti-public sector movement that started around the time of the Great Recession when um, private, the private sector basically did away with, uh, with pensions, with, with stabilized pension plans, and the public sector didn't, and some savvy politicians vilified the public sector as the reason, and the public sector and its pension formulas as the reason why state budgets were underwater and there was so much fiscal stress. And I think there's been a constant drumbeat ever since that um, public education is broken. It's not a place for the best and the brightest to go to teach and work. And in fact, that whole sector is part of the problem and the mess that we're in. So teachers who want to do this, they're really, they're really um, battling a lot of upstream resistance in our, in our culture and in our political culture. And um, yet and still, it's great work. Uh, it is the noblest profession. It's, it can be really enjoyable day to day. Um, this most recent wave and of the pandemic, I think there's just such a variety of ways that schools pivoted to online and back um, online learning and back to in-person learning in ways that uh, had to be rushed and often were done without the best input of teachers or without proper preparation of teachers. And a lot of it just didn't work for teachers and, and kids. And I think that that has turned a lot of people off. Um, and we're, we're feeling that right now. Yeah. Good to talk with you, Brian. Good to see you. Jolyn, your thoughts? Yes, uh, thanks, Ross, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd have to agree with a lot of what uh, Brian mentioned earlier, um, but I, I do think part of it um, is about the perception of the teaching profession early, early on in life. I know, just to speak from my own experience, uh, you know, when we talked about or we were told about high-paying jobs growing up, one thing that you know never came to mind was, or, or never came to the forefront, was the teaching profession, and that in itself, if we think it is a, a highly important um, profession, is a problem, right? Um, I think the passion to uh, work with students and, and um, you know impart wisdom into students and pour into them is there for a lot more people who are actually entering the profession. I think um, part of the issue is. Uh, that the, the teachers um, aren't necessarily paid for paid as well as they could be. I think that's one issue, right? Um, but as has been mentioned um, by you and Brian, um, there, there are other issues, right? Frequent mm -hmm. changes in leadership. You know, I, I worked in schools in New York City, and we too had um, change in, uh, you know, chancellors frequently. I think I was in the, in the 11, 12 years I was there, we had around six different chancellors or so. Um, and as, as was mentioned, that's a lot of different initiatives, right? As soon as um, administrator, administration gets comfortable with um, what the new initiatives are in, in terms of how to um, uh, give that and disseminate, disseminate that information to staff, um, then there's a new change in leadership and then uh, things change again. And so that, that trickle down ends up getting kind of lost. Um, it, it's, it's not sustainable over time. So I think um, in addition to um, pay, I think, I think passion keeps teachers in the profession, even when the pay is not great. Um, but I do think other things like frequent changes in leadership uh, definitely play, play a huge role. Thank you. You know, nationally, uh, during the 2011-12 school year, teachers' supply actually exceeded demand. 
That changed dramatically beginning in 2015 and 16. Demand exceeded supply by 110,000 in 2017 and will exceed 300,000 teachers, shortage 300,000 teachers by 2025. So this crisis is real, it's large, it's growing. It's particularly high in high poverty schools. And as you all know, teacher turnover has a negative effect on student achievement and it costs money. In 2019, teacher turnover cost approximately $21,000 per teacher and over $7.3 billion a year nationally. And the teacher shortage perpetuates itself, as I've heard you both say. With so many teachers leaving, young people are increasingly reluctant to join the profession. So is it money? You would think that if you were coming from a corporate environment, but just raise pay, that will solve the problem. That's not true. People entered the profession to make a difference. They were driven by moral conviction. Is it burnout? I would say that'd be understandable, but that's not entirely true either. Teachers are leaving because they're demoralized. And when you're demoralized, money becomes an issue. If I'm going to be treated this way, if you're going to value me only for standardized test scores, if parents are not engaged, if students are apathetic, if principals are not supportive, you know what? You're going to have to pay me a lot more to tolerate all of this. What do you think, guys? Well, I'll, I'll weigh in here. I, uh, everything that you're saying is um, really onerous in terms of the moment that we're in and the direction that we're going. And when I think through some of the recent um, sort of larger movements to improve accountability, to improve equity, to ensure that schools and school districts are educating all students well and not just some students, um, a lot of the mechanisms for doing so uh, were created by people in state houses who had never worked in a public school. And um, I, I, for one, was actually on board with a lot of it. The rhetoric is right to me, and a lot of the solutions made some sense, but their implementation has to be right for schools. And when they're being designed and imposed by people who've never worked in schools and have a... Uh, uh, you know, a lack of appreciation for the magic of schools, then you get the kind of outcomes that you are that you are talking about now. The major thing missed in all of those formulas is joy. Uh, schools should be joyous places for kids to learn. Uh, when kids come to school, whatever their background and whatever their home life is and whatever they had previously faced, they should be coming to a place where they have a sense of belonging and they can be happy. And uh, the seriousness of the accountability movements that I think was rightly placed uh, became like this drumbeat that you're talking about in terms of test scores and uh, performance appraisals and firing principals leading to turnover in teaching staffs. And, uh, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten too much away from the sense that um, kids are going to learn best and uh, going to be provided with the best possible development when they and those around them feel a sense of joy and happiness in the exploration and learning that they're engaged in. Well, those are two words we don't really hear often. Joy and happiness. Yeah, that's, and that's the problem. I bring, I bring this up in various conversations and people are like, oh, that's so novel. Um, but they're, they're kids uh, <laughs> and learning can be fun. You know, you remind me of the time when, when I was teaching late 70s, early 80s. We had such freedom. You know, my kids would go out on the weekends and 
uh, explore like an anthropologist and they bring in depression glass that they found and a, a bone, for example, it's an anthropology class I was teaching. We'd all go down to the science teacher's classroom together and show them to her and they would examine them. We had fun. It was really fun. Um, and that has changed. You're absolutely right. Here's a few interesting facts. Teacher America appears to be filling many teacher vacancies, particularly in poor communities, underserved communities like Mississippi and New Orleans. Teacher America core members who did not go into teaching to stay, but they now have a higher retention rate than teachers who entered the profession as a certified teacher. So who's leaving? Teachers who quit are likely to be more credentialed and more experienced than those who stay. And the research points to the fact that the most effective teachers, the top 20%, those who can have a five or six month growth in academic achievement in one year, more than five or six months, they're leaving at the same rate as the least effective teachers. So the most effective teachers are leaving the profession. Uh, uh, stunning, the top 20%. Again, this is all complicated uh, and compounded in high poverty schools. So, Jolin, turn it to you now. It's, it's, uh, it's not a, uh, an easy fix, is it? Not at all, not at all. But um, I do think there are a few different ways to try to um, approach the, the issues that we're seeing. Um, in terms of uh, a few different things, uh, I, do, I do agree with Brian that schools should be enjoyable um, and meaningful, right? Sometimes students complain about not seeing the connection between school and the real world, but there are obviously millions of teachers out there trying to, to help them see why what they're learning is important and how to apply what they're learning, transferable skills, et cetera. Um, so, you know, making sure that teachers are well-versed in um, helping students see the connections, I think is, is uh, paramount. Um, I know we've talked a little bit about pandemic burnout, high stress. The job is, you know, is not always a cakewalk, right? It is right. It's difficult. It is um, challenging to uh, be able to reach different uh, learning styles and students who learn at different speeds and in different ways. And so a teacher is tasked with doing a lot to uh, make sure they reach the needs of all children. And therefore, an administrator uh, is also tasked with a lot in terms of trying to train a, a teacher uh, in the proper way to reach those children. Um, and so, you know, proper training is, is great, uh, meaningful professional development um, that, that can be applied in real time or, you know, um, quick turnaround time because, you know, students, you don't have the student in front of you for long periods of time. You may only have them for a semester um, or trimester. And so uh, figuring out ways to adapt to the learning styles and needs of a student um, quickly is, is um, something that has to be looked at. But one thing I, I think is also partially lacking um, in, some, in some districts is um, finding ways to uh, enhance the affinity networks. I know Myself being an African-American male, I didn't always see uh, people who were in uh, positions of administration or higher. Um, and so that, that can be the case for Latinos, um, Asians, um, LGBTQ community. I think having a support network, um, uh, talking to people who have been through similar situations, you know, trying to figure out ways that they've navigated the problems that they're seeing, I think that's also highly important. Yeah, thank you. I agree with everything you just said. You know, it's particularly challenging to find a special education teacher uh, or a high school chemistry teacher or a physics teacher. Mm. So here we are trying to find a diverse teaching staff. That's also a challenge as well, so that young people can look up and see people who look like them in the classroom. 
So it's a you know complicated issue, and you're right. I think it's uh, it's partly about uh, professional development. We want to not be so focused on standardized test scores. They want professional support. They want supportive principals. They want to work in safe and supportive environments. They want to be treated like professionals. I know when I, I think back uh, in those days, if there was a back-to-school night, parents would bring me dinner, uh, or, or they would they would show up with you know dessert or around town you were treated differently. I remember even getting a better interest rate at a bank because I was a teacher in the school and I'd get invited to the same events as the lawyers and doctors in town. So that's, that was a really priceless experience. And that was, you know, eighties, early eighties. I think something has changed dramatically, hasn't it? Yeah, no, I'd I'd agree. I mean, I can't, I can't speak to, you know, the eighties. I wish I, I wish I would have gotten a better interest rate. Um, However, Uh, I, I do, I do think that, um, you know, some of the ways in which, um, educators have been appreciated have fallen by the wayside. I do. I mean, I, I come from a family that has a couple of, uh, teachers, aunts and uncles and former principals as well. My grandfather actually, um, from Eastern North Carolina, a small town called Scotland Neck. Um, he went to Elizabeth city state for his bachelor's and before this is before integration, he, in 1908 is when he was born. He um, taught and was a principal of an elementary school. Um, and once integration happened, he went to um, get his master's so, you know, he could maintain his status um, and become and still maintain his principalship. Um, but I, I always love hearing the stories about how the entire community supported him uh, to make sure that, you know, he had everything he needed on, on his way to get his bachelor's and his masters to come back and be able to pour into the community. Um, and I don't know that that support is always there for educators as well. Um, but it is, it is interesting that you, you know, you bring up that point about the, the ways in which we hold educators in high regard. I don't know that that's still, um, still a thing. Um, and I definitely think it should be a thing because, you know, you don't have your doctors and lawyers and what right. have you without a great uh, teacher pouring into them at some point in time. Thank you, Jolin, and thank you, Brian. You know, in a moment, we're going to take a short break. When we do, you'll learn more about MECED, the nonprofit I lead in Charlotte, North Carolina. When we return, we're going to engage our guests and transition to the recruiting and retention of effective principals and superintendents. Don't go away. The best is yet to come. We'll see you on the other side. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. Goal to make sure that every every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school. That school isn't enough. That to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MECED, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. 
I think I think I do think Medcat is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students, and it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so Medcat means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways, we work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would, would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know. Having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know. Different family. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on, on what is possible, not simply what's wrong. Today, we're focused on recruiting and retaining high-quality and effective educators. Before the break, we discussed teachers and, and how we could keep them in the classroom effective teachers. Now we're going to shift gears and dig in deeper around recruitment and retention of effective principals and superintendents. You know, before the break, we talked briefly about Teach for America. Brian, as I recall, there was a time when you were the only TFA core member who went on to serve as the superintendent of schools. Is that true? Well, uh, I was the first, but not the only. There are several out there now. Mm -hmm. And you served in South Orange, Maplewood, and then in New York. When you I, left, yeah. In New Rochelle, New York, yeah. In New Rochelle. So when you left in 2018, what cut kept you from finding another superintendency? It seems common for superintendents to move around. In fact, the national average, again, for urban districts is 2.7 years, even less for women. You yeah, well, yeah. For, for me personally, um, I wanted the opportunity to reflect, kind of consolidate what I had learned and really be part of uh, identifying, preparing, and supporting others to do this really important work of leading schools and school districts. So for me, after about 14 years of superintendent, being superintendent across the two districts, uh, I wanted the opportunity to, to think, uh, to teach, to write, and to really coach and advise um, other leaders for a while. Um, I love the work of being superintendent. I, I, I wasn't tired of it. Um, and I think I still probably have one in me uh, uh, before, before not too long. Um, the other thing for me personally is that, um, you know, the work is, the work is, is such, it's, it's so engrossing. It's, 
incredibly engaging. And when you take on places where there's lots of needs and um, equity issues to address, it can become all-encompassing. Uh, and I started relatively young, which means I was superintendent and new dad at the same time, a mm. uh, couple times. And I just found that um, the time demands in the way that I was approaching the job, I'm kind of workaholic when it comes to um, the work. Uh, it was it was too hard to um, be the kind of husband father I wanted to be and be the kind of superintendent I wanted to be at the same time. Mm. Yeah, that's real. And I knew I know you uh, quite well that way. And I know that you're, you're tireless, you know, as a, as a, as a, as an educator, but the family piece is really critical. I get that. I understand. Um, you know, so many nights out, so many people have demands on you. What about the politics of being a superintendent? Well, yeah, I, you know, I think a lot about that now, especially as I'm teaching and advising other superintendents or aspiring superintendents who come through our leadership program at Lehigh's College of Education. And um, the politics really matters. And uh, I came into the superintendency as a teaching and learning guy, as someone who um, really wanted to make a difference in the arena that that intersection of social justice and public education really make systems that were working okay for a lot of kids work really well for all kids. And uh, so my, my focus was around the um, around teaching and learning and really getting deep into pedagogy assessments, mm. um, instruction. Um, and, uh, and the politics is something that I, for one, learned along the way. And now that I'm advising and, and, um, and supporting others, it's not so much that I prioritize it, but there is a baseline foundation of knowing how to work in a strong, strong partnership between an elected board of education and an appointed superintendent of schools that is really critical for school districts to have the kind of stability and continuity that allows people to do their best work. Um, and there's a lot involved in that. It's commonly called politics, but it's really uh, the art and science of good governance. Hmm. I do recall, you know, uh, teaching myself about the leadership and, and recommending to new and aspiring superintendents that they, you know, that, that politics matters and size matters. And when you're talking to somebody, always think of the constituency standing behind them. So I might be talking to you, but I'm also talking to the parents of the gifted and talented. And you're talking to me, but you're also talking to the, you know, the custodial staff and the football coach. Because, you know, in, at the end of the day, whoever has the bigger constituency is going to win, unfortunately, in the political arena. Yeah, and, and in uh, those interactions, it's important to, to always be in role to understand that there aren't any casual conversations. That's right. Um, that there's always an agenda. And that really the imperative for the school or school district leader is to not survive in the job, but to change the culture. Yeah. Because the way that schools work and the way that they were designed and their history in our, in our country um, means that they too often serve adult purposes, number one. And number two, there is this almost unshakable belief that some kids are more worthy than others. And allowed to drift schools will feel the gravitational pull towards uh, those two, those two, um, those two belief sets, those two like cultural forces. 
And the only thing that can counter those cultural forces and make schools the empowering vehicles that they can be and should be is leadership. And the leadership disposition around a sense of values, a sense of moral purpose, a sense of urgency that can actually counter those gravitational pulls and shape the culture through the force of leadership. You know, Brian, I haven't forgotten that you say you might have one more left in you. You know, Charlotte, North Carolina, the, uh, we're, we're looking right now. We have an interim. <laughs> It'd be nice down here. Right now, I, I mean, the, the balance between family and work is really real. And um, I don't often talk about this uh, so publicly, but uh, I think it matters. You know, I've got, I've got one kid who is of my own who is still in high school. And um, knowing myself, if I were to take on a challenge like that, um, I would essentially never be home. And I'm not willing to be absent from her life until she is ready for me to be uh, absent. Well, not absent, but like not in her life at all. I get it. (laughs) I get it. I so get it. Uh, Joel, you served as a teacher and a principal in New York. From your experience, what needs to change in order to recruit and retain effective principals? Yeah, that's a great question and a big question. I mean, um, some of the things I mentioned before, um, you know, having affinity networks, uh, support systems, having uh, leadership that um, is very supportive of teachers, especially, you know, this is Mental Health Awareness Month, um, taking into account the fact that not only do our students need uh, to know that mental health is important, but obviously teachers, educators, uh, administrators, um, know that that is critical as well and to and to be able to teach effectively you need to be in the right headspace um obviously uh, you know some of the stress was very much um brought to the forefront during the pandemic um it was already there before but uh even more so um you know going back and forth from in-person learning to virtual etc just and in such a quick fashion um but it, it brought to the forefront the fact that teachers even more so um, need to be cared for. Um, and, you know, a lot of the push in New York before I left was around like having uh, mindfulness moments and, and talking to staff about how to really center themselves and, um, you know, maybe get therapy if they needed it. Right. It's a real thing um, in, in any space. But teaching can, you know, it, it requires a lot of a lot of um, yourself. Uh, you give a lot to others and don't necessarily always take care of yourself, unfortunately. And so, um, I think having leaders that um, have uh, their, their educators and, and employees best interest in mind, especially in terms of mental health, I think that's a huge thing. I think also I'm a product of uh, career switching from uh, I used to work with IBM and IT um, and I went into the teaching fellows program, which is similar to Teach for America. And I went to St. John's and, um, you know, a lot of the, the people who I started with are no longer in the profession. Um, but have gone on to do other things, whether it be consulting in education or writing books in education, um, or still, you know, volunteer in the education space. But finding ways to keep them in the space if they're really passionate about working with students, um, you know, that's, it's a tall task, but I think it can be done. And, and also just focusing on the importance of um, why, why teachers are so important in our society um, from an early point, right? Like if we, if we tell students, in middle and high school that, you know, it's great to be a teacher, right? It's fun, right? You, you're not, 
necessarily always happy about what's happening in your classroom, well, become a teacher and change the world, right? Like you really get to touch every type of student in terms of what, what they're capable of doing. Um, and it, it may start with what you say to them in the classroom. Um, so not just, you know, waiting till they're in their high school years to, to get them to try to think about a, a, th- a teaching profession. It's so rewarding. Um, I think it should be, you know, something that we, we pitch to kids early on as well. You know, this program is interesting. I hope, I hope that influencers are listening because words like joy and mindfulness keep coming up in our conversation. And it reminds me of so, so many wonderful things about being a school principal and how much I loved it and how much fun we had. I recall on the first day of school going around to all of the classrooms to ask, uh, what are the three roles here at Clinton Public School? And I ended up in a kindergarten class and I asked that question and one, I said, there are only three roles. And one kid raised his hand and he said, you can't smoke. I go, okay, maybe there are there four, there are four, four roles. You can't, you can't, <laughs> smoke. <laughs> you can't smoke. That's true. But um, just so much fun interacting with young people. And, and of course I only had 541 kids. I knew every one of their names, knew their families. One day, somebody's dog got lost. We went and found them. It, was, it seemed like a different world. Uh, and I guess it is a different world. You know, it was, it was very familial to me. So, I, you know, I, I circle back to principals here. 50, 50 here in Charlotte, North Carolina have left mid-year to take other jobs. You know, many of them in nonprofits, focused on education, like you said, Joel, doing something different, but still in the profession. And superintendents, I... You know, I, I jokingly say it's probably not, it's probably defensive, but, you know, they're the highest paid migrant workers in America because they just move around. In fact, you know, we sort of know their names. Uh, you know, they go from Miami to Los Angeles and they go from New Orleans to Connecticut and uh, from Chicago to Philadelphia. And uh, I just, uh, I find it so interesting. And each time, as we mentioned before, there's a, there's a listening tour, there's a new strategic plan and. And by the time we implement it, we move on to the next superintendent. You know, in your case, Brian, it became an issue of dissatisfaction on the board, like the swirling new board in the community that came on. You were elected by one board and essentially ended up working for another. Is that true? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the aspects that face superintendents um, is that there's there's an election every year. Uh, in most school districts. Um, I mean, that's not true for every school district, but I think most school districts, there's an election for school board members uh, every year. And um, I mentioned earlier, sort of the art and science of good governance masquerading as politics. Uh, What it takes to get elected, especially if if the community is activated around any kind of issue set in the community. And right now there is a there are, are very large national forces trying to activate communities politically around issues related to the public schools. So that puts pressure on these local elections. And um, there's a big difference between campaigning and winning a seat and what it takes to participate in uh, providing excellence of governance and excellence in leadership and a strong, strong partnership, uh, which is what is owed the community. And uh, there's there's really not enough um, training, education, thinking in this space. Um, I, I was lucky enough upon entering into South Orange Maplewood that I had an I had an excellent mentor, um, Dr. Larry Leverett, who was actually mm-hmm. my introduction to you, Ross, um, mm-hmm. and seeing how he handled this in Plainfield, uh, New Jersey, 
And he also connected me with an excellent provider of training for school boards in, in providing excellence in governance named Dennis Cheesebro, who uh, um, is out of Minnesota, but travels around and um, provides this kind of training. So I learned about it along with my board of education in South Orange Maplewood and became really fascinated by uh, all the ways in which school boards and superintendents can work together in a strong, strong partnership, fulfilling their unique roles and, and providing that to school districts. And so that was really um, I mean, most superintendents will complain about their boards or their board members, but that learning that and um, working on that uh, while at the same time making deep changes in the status quo in school district mm -hmm. to provide greater opportunity and access to kids who had been uh, left out, who didn't have adult advocates, who were not considered the most worthy in the school districts. Um, I mean, that was that was. I, I loved that work. I love that kind of partnership with boards, um, but it's intense. And um, and when board mem when particular board members are at cross purposes, or they're looking to do something else, like advance their own political career and standing, or they're solely represent a special interest, that can become pretty difficult. And I think is one of the reasons why there is the kind of turnover and movement that you just described in the superintendency. You know, this is a crazy idea, but you know, it would be fun to think of it as a, like a tour of duty. You know, you serve two years, then you go off and do something else, and then you come back to the front line for a little while. Because I, I can't imagine how, how difficult it is personally, professionally, how draining it is physically and psychologically. Um, and I don't know how people do it for any length of time, right? You did it for 13, 13 years, was it? 14? Yeah, somewhere, somewhere around there. And, um, you know... Um, Kaya Henderson, when she left DC, said, "You know, superintendent years—they're like dog years." Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I heard somebody else say that all superintendents are interims. All superintendents <laughs> are interims. I guess I guess that's the case. Yeah. Sadly, so you know. Thank you, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Joel. In a moment, we're going to take a break. During that break, we're going to learn more about MechEd, the nonprofit I lead in Charlotte, North Carolina. To learn more about MechEd, we invite you to visit us on the web at www.meched.org. Org. When we return, we'll be joined by MechEd's board chair, Mayor Jennifer Roberts. She's going to help us answer the question, what have we learned today? Don't go away. We'll be right back. So MechEd is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now, we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Uh, before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, they, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll put, pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. It's goal to make sure that every, every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school, that school isn't enough, that to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. MechEd's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are gonna need to thrive in life. Young people spend 
only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. We want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics. You're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and MacEd, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Janis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. And welcome back to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses not on what's wrong with our schools, but what's possible. Today we're discussing the educator recruitment and retention crisis, and we're joined by Dr. Brian Osborne and Mr. Jolan Shields. In our final segment, Mayor Jennifer Roberts is going to help us answer the question, what have we learned today? Mayor Roberts, what have you been thinking about? You've been listening. What's on your mind? What have we learned today? Well, I tell you, um, you've had two terrific speakers, and they have pinpointed a great deal of the challenges that we face. And I can't help but thinking uh, it is so much a product of where we are as a country. Uh, you know that I'm doing work in our democracy and the polarization that we continue to see uh, our schools and our teachers have been at, at, you know, right in the bullseye of the target uh, in our current culture wars. And what I heard over and over from your guest today um, was the need for being treated as professionals, mm-hmm. the need for good professional development where teachers are seen as leaders, as shapers of our future. Um, as uh, people who need that network of support. I heard uh, one of your guests talk about affinity groups, about support groups. I heard you talk about uh, parents bringing gifts, uh, you know, supporting teachers, having appreciation lunches, um, all these kinds of things that, that show teachers they are respected, they are shaping our future, they're critical to the survival of our democracy, they're critical to the survivor of our economy, and unfortunately, the society today does not treat them that way. Now, I don't know if you remember, but my first job out of college, I was a teacher. Mm. And um, I taught in a private school, not a public school. But 
I think the one thing I loved it um, that someone else mentioned joy and fun. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I taught math and we had so much fun. We'd go outside and we'd take the angle of the building and try to figure out the height by triangulation and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. And, you know, that is something that is, is incredibly important is to have that joy and that happiness. Uh, but, but what, <laughs> what helped lead me into a different direction was the fact that I would go to, and this is in the eighties along with you, Ross, mm-hmm. um, I would go to uh, cocktail parties and I'd tell people I'm a teacher and immediately the, you know, lawyers, doctors, business people, whatever, they wouldn't know what to talk about. Like right. they, they wouldn't, <laughs> Uh, say, oh, that's so exciting, you know, what grade and what subject, and they, they were just focusing on, you know, different, different aspects of our economy, and uh, what I want to tell all your listeners today is that each one of us, each one of us can play a role in changing the challenges that your two speakers have talked about. Each one of us can value and respect whether we're a parent whether we're an elected official, whether we are a business person, the attitude that we show teachers when we meet them on the street, we meet them in the classroom, we meet them at a cocktail party, we have got to show that respect. You know, I spent a year in Italy in graduate school. And I tell you, when you are a dottore, which is a a teacher, you were treated with utmost respect. Uh, You know, other countries have figured this out that, and whether it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be pay. I think your speakers were, were right on about that. Uh, it is an attitude. It is a way of treatment. It is a, uh, a perspective that is immediately evident when you walk in a room. <laughs> and they know what I'm talking about. And you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, listen, I taught in India in 1983, and I was referred to as an educationist. <laughs> <laughs> not a teacher and uh, talk about respect oh my god you know yeah. it, it was just a, out of uh, over the top people would follow you around with a chair in case you wanted to sit down right <laughs> crazy it was just crazy different so and, and there's and we have this you know that phrase if what you can't do teach you know um right. it, it is it has persisted for decades in yeah. our country I think one of the things that's exacerbated it in the most recent years, when you talk about your statistics of people leaving, uh, things like social media, mm-hmm. um, the ability to uh, criticize with impunity and with anonymity, uh, and to gather a lot of people to do the same thing, and also that I'll go back to that polarization. Mm-hmm. Um, your your guest talked about politics. Politics are more polarized than we've seen since the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And our teachers and our educators and our principals are suffering. You know, the thing about education is it is not uh, an issue that we should silo, uh, which is also a challenge politically. Because as mayor, as you remember, I had a big push for supporting after-school programs. Well, our city doesn't vote on any of the school budget. We do. The city does fund a few after-school programs. But... They, everybody thinks the school board in the county and the state are the ones doing education. That is harmful because each one of us plays a role. Each elected body plays a role. Um, our, our health department, oh my gosh, we didn't even talk about the health of our, uh, of our kids and keeping them in school and the health of our teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your guests talked about mental health. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Let's get out of our silos. It's all of our responsibilities. We all depend on teachers for our future. And we have got to start showing that. Every single person listening to this podcast can be part of that solution. You know, you mentioned the polarization. I've been to some like horrifying board meetings where parents are arguing about masks. And it's just, in fact, some of them, because it's online and Zoom, you know, I feel like people have feel liberated to say whatever they want because no one's sitting next to them. But <laughs> some of that has to stop. It just has to stop. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, psychologist and social uh, specialist will, will tell you that how do we get past polarization? How do we get past demonization and seeing people as the other and the enemy? And it's face-to-face interaction. Mm-hmm. And so COVID really did throw us for a loop because we lost that for two years. We lost face-to-face humanization of people who may have a few different ideas than we do. And uh, we have, we, I hope that we can get back to that. Uh, but I also hope, you know, you're talking about reinventing school. I also hope that we, we take some learnings uh, for, for those who have had to be digitally connected about some of the opportunities that are there as well. But, but there's nothing to replace a teacher in front of a class, being able to see the attitude of the kids, being able to see their health, uh, to see whether they're healthy, whether they've eaten, whether they've slept, uh, mm-hmm. and integrate that into the way that they are uh, helping them learn and become you know, terrific adults who can contribute to their communities. Yeah, well said, well said. Jolyn, uh, your thoughts? You must be thinking about something right now, listening to Mayor Roberts. Yeah, no, um, I concur with a lot of what was said. Things are very much polarized at the moment. Um, you know, I think, I think we were making a lot of progress. I know in New York, we really had a major push for culturally relevant education in terms of just like making sure that what was uh, being assessed meant something to the students. Did, did it make sense? Um, if, if a student's from the inner city and has never been to a golf course, why are we asking them questions that um, are talking about the tea time? You know, I, you know we, we really have to take a few steps back and realize we, we have made a lot of progress. And um, if we can get away, away from this polarization, I think we'll, we'll be, uh, you know, back on the right track. I also think that, um, you know, technology, as was mentioned, does play a major role in the future of education. Um, obviously, we were thrust um, a couple of light years ahead um, because of the pandemic, but we were already doing great work in many areas in, in terms of incorporating technology into the classroom, distance learning, blended learning, uh, things of that nature, trying to make sure that kids are, are prepared to enter the workforce by um, knowing how to interact with uh, technology in ways other than just via social media. And so uh, a lot of teachers are doing really good work. Uh, a lot of uh, administrators and, and districts are really incorporating, um, you know, blended learning at a rapid speed uh, and trying to keep up with the demands of the workforce, right? They need students who know how to do things other than just uh, post on TikTok, right? So teaching students how to identify the differences between um, factual uh, information that is even more needed now than ever before. (laughs) Um, Citing sources and information. I think it is just, there's just a lot of work to be done. I know that, uh, you know, our, our educators are, are, their hearts are in the right place and they deeply care about their students and, and to, um, 
you know, have that personal interaction again after the pandemic is, is, is been, has been a blessing. Um, I know the students really um, are happy to have them in their lives. And, you know, they see, uh, they see, you know, what, what teachers really can do when they're face to face with them. Um, and so, yeah, I just really, I really um, am hopeful for the future. And uh, post pandemic, I think, you know, we'll get back to where we were it's just, uh, you know, we got to really work hard at, at, at um, getting rid of the polarization. So I'm going to just jump in and say that, you know, the, the name of this podcast, Let's Reinvent School, is based a little bit on the, you know, these conversations about when the pandemic's over, we can return, we can return to normal. You know, normal wasn't so equitable in many schools. And, and I know we were making progress, but there are opportunities here, as you've mentioned, John, about with technology. If you have one school that has two kids that want to do AP chemistry, but there's no AP chemistry class offered there, I don't see any reason why we can't collect 15 to 20 students to have one advanced placement chemistry class online uh, to make, because if it's not available in every school. Absolutely. So there are, I think there are ways that technology, we could learn from this experience and integrate it in a way that makes sense and makes school more equitable. Let's turn to you, Brian, you've been patiently sitting there. I know you have something on your mind. Yeah, sure. I think if I were to get in the last word here, it would be in light of the polarization that the mayor well described. I just want to give um, as much positive energy, thanks, kudos, and praise to those Board of Education members and superintendents who take the slings and arrows of what I see as a deliberate, deliberate mobilization against public education and against the public good that is specifically designed to make uh, taking those roles, those roles of public service, those roles of forward thinking in our community um, that are the Board of Education members and district leaders and make them so distasteful, so uncomfortable that people who are about kids are not going to want to do them. And they're going to instead be populated by people who are interested in privatizing, people who are interested in bringing our country back, um, people are interested in a warped view of our history. Uh, so I really, they've been, those, those people who've been doing those, that, that work over the last couple of years have really taken it on the chin. And for doing that, you know, I, I, and uh, I thank them and just really want to, send as much encouragement and support as possible. Thank you, Brian. Listen, thanks for listening uh, to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what's possible, not what's wrong. Uh, and thank you to our amazing guests, Dr. Brian Osborne and MECA's Career Pathway Advisor, Mr. Jolin Shields, and Mayor Jennifer Roberts. Thank you for your service to children and to our democracy. I know you've given us a lot to think about. And thank you to our listeners. I encourage all of you to share this program with influencers, with people in your social networks, and as well as other episodes of Let's Reinvent Schools, either from our homepage or wherever you get your podcast. By the way, I always love saying that. Until next week, this is Ross Dennis. You've been listening to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on not what's wrong, but what's possible. Join us next week when we'll explore the world of special education. Until then, as I often say, onward. Thank you all. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.